This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. We are rounding the corner of Season 7. My name is David Dalt and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith and I teach at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York and is the Duns Scotus Professor of Spirituality at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago and he's a columnist at National Catholic Reporter. Welcome, Dan. Hey, David. Good to see you. And I also want to welcome Heidi Schlumpf, Executive Editor of National Catholic Reporter. Welcome, Heidi. Good morning, David and Dan. Good to see you guys. Good to see you, Heidi. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. We also have special bonus segments for all you friends of Frank who support the show by donating each month on Patreon. Every couple of weeks, we add a bit of bonus audio, an extended discussion or interview. If you'd like to hear them, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod and become a monthly supporter of the show. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always Talk to Frank by emailing FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. Today we're going to be talking about three topics. We're going to be talking about the state of the election, 10 days as we're recording this after the election has happened. We're also going to be talking about the recent report on Theodore McCarrick that was released by the Vatican, and we're going to be talking about the COVID-19 pandemic and where things stand. But before we get into that, I just want to say Welcome again to the both of you, and wow, what a week it has been. How have you two been doing in the wake of the election? <laughs> well, it's been a busy time in the news business. Seems like I say that every every time we get together to talk, but I think it's really been probably one of the craziest weeks in my history, 30-year history as a journalist. So aside from the election happening and then the post-election waiting, the constant watching of CNN, and then the the calling it for Biden on Saturday morning, which I was watching CNN at the time, and uh, we had some content, an editorial and a story ready to publish. And then just knowing already that the McCarrick report was coming on Tuesday morning means for Catholic journalists, I haven't been sleeping very much. Similar here. It's It's been crazy for similar reasons and some different ones. We're getting toward the end of the semester, so things are continuing at regular pace and picking up toward uh, final projects and research papers and that kind of stuff. So, you know, grading, grading, grading is on the horizon. But also this past weekend, I had the privilege of presiding the wedding of one of my former students and his, his lovely spouse. And that was really nice. It's my second kind of exceptional 
traditional non non Eucharistic liturgy, although there was a mass, it was in, within the context of a mass. But besides masses, this was my second sacramental pandemic experience. Uh, listeners may recall from a special summer episode, David and I talking about my going to Iowa to Dubuque to celebrate the baptism of my friend's two children. And like that, you know, lots of precautions, mask wearing, social distancing, distributing communion. The liturgy was interesting because they have these kind of like, they almost look like ticket booths that they wheel over that have a big kind of glass, you know, separating platform. And so that's people on both sides, both the the Eucharistic ministers or the presider and the uh, communicants are all getting used to that. Uh, kind of dance, but but things are things are going well. Things are very very busy, and so uh, I've appreciated all the work that the folks like Heidi and Josh McElwee and Chris White and others uh, NCR have been doing because it's it's a nonstop roller coaster, nonstop. How are you, David? Well, so I think I'm okay. I have been very very busy, like everyone else in the conversation. The thing that has been weighing on me the most is the effect that all of this has been having on my kids. And over the past week, I think with all of the election stress and seeing the adults in the household stressed out, the kids got kind of got a little stressed out too. And this is a regular conversation that I have with my daughter, but my daughter came to me again and basically broke down in tears saying, I miss seeing people. I mean, I miss seeing my friends. I miss seeing just other people in the world. And she's a very social little creature. You know, I'm an introvert. My wife's an introvert. She's the extrovert in our family, and it's really wearing on her more than the rest of us, or at least she is more more sort of attuned to it than maybe the rest of us are. And so that, to me, has been heartbreaking because again and we'll get into this more as we get into the episode but but as i look around at the administration right now i see nothing being done to actually make this better and i i think it's going to be a long a long winter before we're in a position where we can actually start to try and have some social interaction again and uh i i hate that for my daughter yeah, but how about that nice weather we've had this past week? It's been like summer in November in Chicago. And I don't know about you guys, but just to be outside and to be able to socialize, at least with our neighbors, for one last time. So now, I, now I'm now i feeling the chill in the air. So I'm, I'm worried too, David, about the, the winter months. Yeah, it's interesting too. Uh, listeners will have heard me talk about this before, but when I moved to Chicago in 2013, I suddenly realized that that old song by the band Chicago, Saturday in the Park, was actually real. Like the winters are so bad here that whenever there is a nice day, just like you said, Heidi, people want to get outside and they want to have cookouts and they want to have parties. And that is a wonderful and very very important impulse usually it's a real tightrope to walk now to how do we get out and how do we actually enjoy this weather while we have it and still stay safe it's a it's been a it's been an interesting thing for our family to try and negotiate that you know getting outside is important but also we're very cautious about how we interact with people. So it's tricky. It's tricky. So as work has been going on, I just said that I've been working more than I feel like I was when it was in non-pandemic times. And maybe I'm the only one in the conversation for whom that's true. Is, is that, has that been your experience as well? I was just actually sharing. We we had a, a house chapter. This is we've talked about this before on the podcast. It's a you know an aspect of religious life where occasionally we get together on a regular basis as a house to to share, to reflect, to to make decisions as a community and that sort of thing. And one of the things we did is is we check in. How are people doing? Kind of like we do at the beginning of every podcast. And I was just conveying to my, to my brother Friars that you know for somebody who is used to traveling 
hundreds of thousands of miles a year uh, to speak and to 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 work and to teach and to do all sorts of things in terms of ministry being in one place for the last 9 months has been surprisingly draining and i think it's because of two things one is everybody presumes that everybody is home or at work you know is is available as it were and so meetings tend to creep up there's this kind of accretion of meetings that uh, I find <laughs> I'm very much resenting at this point and then the second thing is how those meetings are conducted which is the way everything is conducted the way we're conducting this this podcast right now which is over Skype or Zoom or Google Hangouts and my experience, especially with moving teaching to fully online, as, as wonderful as that technology is and allows us to continue doing the work that, that we need to do, I feel as a teacher, as a professor, I'm being drained of all the things that are required of me that are necessary, but getting none of the return. So one of the things, and, and I imagine both of you are teachers or have been, I mean, one of the things that's so life-giving to me is the interacting with students, the interacting with colleagues, you know, staff members, just seeing other people. And and I've been very privileged over the years to be able to to travel all over the world at the invitation of universities and dioceses to give lectures and workshops and retreats and to interact with those people and to meet new people and to be in a new place. That gives me a lot of life. And I feel very, very, very empty, <laughs> kind of, you know, emotionally, spiritually in that regard. And I don't think I realized how draining it was until very recently, you know, toward the end, maybe as we're heading toward winter. And I see, like you said, David, a very long winter ahead. Well, it's hard for me to ascertain how much the pandemic has changed my workload because I became editor right as we lock down in March. So I'm definitely working way more, but I can't tell if it's the new job or the pandemic. You know, I meet with two friends every Friday night for a very socially distanced outdoor happy hour. And this past week, we were all bemoaning how much we miss travel. So we just sat there and daydreamed about where we're going to go when this is all over. So I don't know if that helped or not or made us sadder about it, but it was sort of fun to make a list of where we hope to travel again. I really miss traveling. Heidi, as you were daydreaming, where are one or two places where you'd like to go when all this is done? Well, one of my friends is going to turn 50 and we're thinking tropical. It was trying to decide between Bermuda or Hawaii. We were all scheduled to go to Germany together in the spring and we weren't able to go. So some talking about whether we're going to go there, but even just regular business travel, like you said, Dan, and getting out and talking to other people. It's not only been tough for my soul, but has made it harder for me to do my job because as editor, I, I want to be talking to all different kinds of Catholics all the time. So, I realize, Dan, that you travel all over the place, so maybe you don't have a favorite place that you'd want to go, but if you did, where would it be? I just want to return to the normalcy. I, I feel so you know, privileged and blessed and honored to be able to go to lots of different places all the time. I was supposed to be in the Philippines for more than a month in spring 2021 as the theological paritas to the Order of Friars Minor to the Franciscan Order for the General Chapter. And I still have that responsibility, but it's been shifted to the summer. They've rescheduled it and tried to abbreviate it in light of the pandemic because you're bringing you know, provincials from all over the world together for, for several weeks to do the business of the order and to elect, you know, a new minister general and to come up with documents and, and you know, statutes of the order and that kind of stuff. And so it's been rescheduled for Rome. Those of you who know Rome, Rome in July is the worst place to be, <laughs> maybe second only to Washington, D.C. in July. It's not a very comfortable place. But nevertheless, you know, things like that, where I was already scheduled to be there, 
I was supposed to give a series of lectures in South Africa next summer. At present, that's been rescheduled for 2022. But you know, I, I don't necessarily have a particular place in mind. I just long for the context, the kind of normalcy that allows for me to be able to go where I'm being invited to go or being called to go. And and so that that makes me sad. I. Yeah, there are places that I like more than others, and I, I will spare the feelings of various cities and locales for the moment. But, you know, I, just going anywhere at this point, frankly, sounds really great to me. David, where do you want to go? Well, before all of this hit, with the retirement of Scott Walker in Wisconsin, my family was actually looking forward to exploring north of Chicago and going up into Wisconsin and visiting Milwaukee and visiting some of the Frank Lloyd Wright locations up there. And as listeners probably could surmise, we were not wanting to support Wisconsin during the Scott Walker incumbency. And so, but I'm I'm sad now to have to delay that because I, I really do want to explore your home state, Heidi. But if I had, it's weird, if I had a choice of like where I want to go when all this is done, years and years ago, I went to a conference in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And I had such a wonderful time in Halifax, Nova Scotia that I have been feeling a pull back there. And so I've been saying to my family, when we can travel again, yes, there are all the places that we would love to go as a family, but one of the places that I would like to go just personally is Halifax, Nova Scotia. I've got no idea why other than I just think it's a great town and I really enjoyed my time there. So I'm looking forward to going back and exploring it again. Just that reminds me, just a little bit east of there is one of my favorite places, which is Newfoundland. And if you go to Labrador or Newfoundland, you know, it's the most eastern part of North America. And so they have their own little half hour off time zone, as it were. But it's such a cool place and it's such a welcoming place and it's so beautiful. So, yeah, I feel that. I feel that, David. I know what you're talking about. It's good to do this little imaginative traveling. And we're going to take you all, dear listeners, on a journey as our hour continues. We're going to take a little break right Right now, but we'll be back in just a moment with more of the Francis effect. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan. I'm here with David Dalt and Heidi Schlumpf. Every couple of weeks, we get together to talk about all sorts of things from culture to politics to church life. And now we are looking at politics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. So the last time you heard our voices, it was right before the election. Now the election is over and everything is done, uh, sort of. Vice President Joe Biden is now President-elect Joe Biden, and Senator Kamala Harris is now Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. And Joe Biden's popular vote lead over incumbent President Trump now exceeds 5 million votes and is continuing to rise as votes across the country continue to be tallied. However, as of this taping, President Donald Trump and most of the Republican establishment have not acknowledged the results of the election, results that at this point seem clear and decisive. The refusal of President Trump to concede the election is beginning to have some serious consequences. For example, Emily Murphy, an administrator at the General Services Administration, has refused to sign a letter that would allow the Biden team to begin the transition of power. The Trump administration has also refused to allow President-elect Biden to receive security briefings. So as we are taping this, a lot is clear, but a lot is still very unknown. David... What are we to make of this? I, I'll be honest with you. I have been thinking about this segment, and I realize we could go in so many different directions. Because on the one hand, what we have is 
an historic event because Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have currently received more popular votes, like there was a larger vote turnout than existed in the Reagan election. It's the largest turnout since FDR. That's significant. And the Electoral College decision seems decisive. And it's decisive enough we might even be able to call it a mandate. All of those things seem very clear. And so we could talk about that. At the same time, (laughs) there is this unprecedented refusal to even acknowledge or begin the process of transferring power, and that also could be a topic that we could talk about and talk about. It's almost as if there are two realities existing here, a reality where the normal levers of power are functioning normally, and that seems to be the world that Joe Biden is choosing to live in. And then most of the Republicans seem to be living in an alternate reality where all of that is still contestable. And in fact, not only has Donald Trump a real chance of winning the election, but in their view, Donald Trump has won the election. I'm not even sure where to begin to direct this conversation. Well, before we do that, because I, I have a lot of thoughts on that, and part of that has to do with the futility of some of these lawsuits of which the Trump administration or campaign have won absolutely zero. They're, they're As the Washington Post said in a, in a very interesting article with a great headline, they are embarrassed out of court, basically. The whole thing is such a ruse. But I have to go on record saying, as we said at the top of this segment, that the last time you heard our voices was before the election. And I made a strong prediction here on the Francis Effect podcast that I need to address. And I had said, predicating that the numbers that we were seeing coming from places like 538's model, from the upshot at the New York Times and so forth, which showed huge, huge leads, particularly in, in swing states like Wisconsin, where one a very, very, very strong, solid scientifically significant and statistically valid survey showed that Biden was leading by like 17 points. And as we saw play out last week, as we're recording, this was last week or two weeks ago during the election, the margins were much, much closer than had been anticipated. And so I had said, if the numbers were true, we should know actually pretty quickly. And I was banking on places like Florida, Texas, Georgia, some of the Sunbelt states that would have processed the ballots in real time as they were coming in in advance as much as a week or two prior to the election day, where, where as we did see, those states eventually were called. But if, the, if they were not called in Biden in Harris's favor, it did not preclude them, as we saw, from clear paths to victory. But if they were called, it would have stopped in his tracks, the the Trump campaign. And that's what I kind of assumed might have happened, like a lot of people did. I kind of wish that would happen. (laughs) Instead, we got what everyone had predicted, which was this drawn out, multi-day, nearly week-long process, which is perfectly reasonable given what you said, David, in terms of this record turnout. But I just want to go on the record to acknowledge I was totally wrong about that. And boy, did I feel that in those coming days. Well, Heidi, you were actually on a panel on election night to give commentary on this, a panel that was made up of people from Catholic Theological Union and the Bernadine Center there, Commonweal Magazine. And I'm interested both your perspective from that evening, but also kind of how you have seen the last 10 days. Yeah, that was an interesting two hours. We specifically avoided doing updates to the horse race, and there there weren't a lot of updates as we spoke from 7 to 9 p.m. Central, except to see that it wasn't looking good for Florida, for Biden. So we kind of talked about broader issues in around polarization and our church. 
What strikes me about the results as they came in, I, I'm kind of a negative Norma, so maybe I was less optimistic about a very decisive win that would have come Tuesday night or early Wednesday morning. But I think that was very orchestrated. We have to remember that, that this red mirage that we got, that Trump was more ahead than he really was, was specifically because in states that wanted to have a chance to count their mail-in and early votes voting things earlier because of the pandemic, more people voted in not these non-traditional ways, and the courts uh, wouldn't let them. So we had a mistaken view in the early part of the, the counting that he was ahead in states that later Biden overtook. So my sister, who is politically savvy and very involved in get out the vote efforts, was constantly reassuring me in those days that now that they were counting the mail-in votes, things were going to start looking very different. I think we have to remember, too, that as we are witnessing this unprecedented you know, unwillingness to concede and even scarier, bizarre changes that Trump is making to, you know, especially some of the leaders in uh, the Pentagon or the National Security Agency, which is very worrying to people in the military and to experts everywhere, that part of the reason a number of Republicans are going along with this isn't because they believe eventually Donald Trump will win. It's because they need his base to show up in that Georgia election where we're going to have two runoffs for two Senate seats that could make the difference in tipping the Senate to the Democrats or not. So it becomes this incredibly important regional election that has massive national implications. And I think what we're seeing and what I'm reading of a lot of private comments from many Republican leaders is that this is over and they're just humoring Donald Trump and doing what they need to do politically to get Georgia. And one of the questions then that lingers from that is, even if most Republicans think that this is just smoke and mirrors, there's a question that remains about what the damage is that is being done to the kind of mechanisms of democracy and the impression of a peaceful transfer of powers. There, That can't be discounted. Yeah, I would agree. I, I think that's the thing that's upsetting me the most, making me very nervous, is, is not Trump and, and not necessarily, you know, people are talking about a coup and this sort of thing. That's just not going to happen, not with him at least. What I'm more concerned about is is the duplicity that, you know, you know this isn't, Heidi didn't use the word duplicity, but basically the fact that you know, some of these top Republican, they're basically congressional Republicans, they're House members and they're senators, with the exception of Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski and Mitt Romney, who have seemed to be again and again, the only Republican senators that have any kind of conscience or common sense. We could talk about Susan Collins, too, by the way, I'm surprised that she she was another surprise of the night. It looked like she would have easily been voted out of office. And yet she was reelected by a healthy margin. But it's, I know the, the short-term political advantage that these legislators are banking on, including people like Senate Leader McConnell and others. The problem is that this trickles down in such dangerous ways that something like 70 million of our fellow citizens are taking this at face value. And it, it's not because they're stupid people. It's not because they're ignorant people. It's because 
we live in a society and many of these folks, like all of us were through civics classes and, and just the American ethos as it's oftentimes presented, are told to trust those who are holding offices of leadership in our communities. And so when they have elected officials, particularly those who hold ideological views that support a worldview that is representative of a certain electorate, they want to hear these things. And it's stoking the base that may in the short term not have any kind of actual consequence, but it's definitely damaging the institution of our government and the institution of our civil society. Well, and I want to draw on that notion of stoking the base, because in that 70 million that you just mentioned, there are an awful lot of Catholics. And when we look at the ways in which these kind of decisions at our at the level of leadership trickle down, it's being augmented by places like EWTN, and it's being augmented by places like Church Militant. And those kind of rank-and-file Catholic perceptions I'm seeing a lot of effects of that. And it's interesting. I I went back to that old document, Forming Consciences for Faithful Citizenship, from the USCCB from a number of years ago. And as I was looking back through that document, one of the things that struck me was that the assumption that is there on every line is that the systems of government will work and that the mechanisms will, will actually function. I may have missed it, but I didn't find any place in this document where it talks about what do you do when the democratic processes fail. But one piece from the document does jump out to me. It's paragraph 39, where it talks about a heroic commitment on the part of Catholics who are politicians and other leaders in society. Having been entrusted with special responsibility for the common good, Catholic leaders must commit themselves to the pursuit of the virtues, especially courage, justice, temperance, and prudence. If we ever needed that, we need that now. And there are a lot of Catholic leaders that are completely falling down on the job with doing that right now. Well, David, you mentioned uh, Catholic media and uh, specifically EWTN, and a number of these Catholic groups and, and Catholic organizations have really contributed to the misinformation that's out there and to the riling up of single issue voters to get them to vote in the way that these groups wanted. I'm receiving still regular emails from CatholicVote.org which was supporting the re-election of Donald Trump. And they are in heavy fundraising mode, trying to uh, agreeing with the president's refusal to uh, concede and trying to support his legal and other ways of challenging. I mean, it's worth noting that CatholicVote.org was specifically at the beginning of this election, noting by the slim margin that Donald Trump won in Wisconsin and in other places like the Blue Wall of Michigan and Pennsylvania. And so they invested millions of dollars to try to make that lead larger for him so that he could more definitively win those states. And instead, it went the other way. So while there are too many Catholics who I think are voting in such a way that that is problematic given our faith, I would say that it, and, and I'm reluctant to trust ex- exit polls, uh, knowing that that data is not very definitive. But it does seem like there was some movement on a number of Catholics, especially white Catholics, although certainly Catholics of color still predominantly came out for the Democrats, but some movement to take some numbers away from Donald Trump. We'll be doing a lot of analysis of all these Catholic data in the weeks to come. Although, again, I'm very reluctant given how inaccurate polls 
and exit polls ha- specifically have been about the religious affiliation of voters in the past. Yeah, maybe that's a good place to pick up, you know, with something that's been on my mind a lot, which is the kind of preliminary postmortem. And, and Heidi mentioned polls and exit polling. With regard to exit polling, one thing that pollsters and analysts have made clear that we should have expected from the beginning is that exit polls are completely worthless this time around because of the pandemic. There's no way to poll people on their vote when they voted a week earlier by mail, right? It's premised on talking to people leaving polling sites, and, and that's that system just doesn't hold up here. And so that's that's understandable. But there is this question about what happened to these correctives to the models and to the survey structure that was being done in light of the the clear errors of 2016, or at least the unexpected results based on. And I think it's important to note too. I'm much. I'm, I'm kind of a, a uh, armchair apologist for the both the scientific pollsters and for the analysts, people like Nate Silver and, and Nate Cohn at, at the New York Times. The results are not their fault. And I think that's really important to notice. And and something Nate Silver says over and over and over again is that these models predict probability. As of election day, according to the 538 model, Donald Trump had a 10% chance of winning the election, and Joe Biden had a 89% chance of winning the election. 10%, 1 in 10 is still a pretty likely possibility. You know, it didn't work out this time, but the same thing happened in 2016. So in terms of forecast modeling, and that's important to realize, but there is this important issue about the polling itself. And in 2016, one of the big problems seemed to be that they didn't account or weigh properly education. So that was not a factor that was weighed as much as it should have been because there wasn't the the correct analysis for uh, white voters in particular who did not have college degrees, which came out in large droves to support Donald Trump. This time around, there's even, it seems in some cases, these polls are even more off. And part of that is, and this is, I, I tend to think this is right. There are a lot of hypotheses. And like Heidi said, we're going to be going through the data for a long time. But the, the most kind of, this is the Occam's razor, a great Franciscan that's that's playing out in my head. I think the honest truth is the people le- most enthusiastic about Donald Trump who have a previous record of not necessarily being politically engaged or voting, this was the demographic that the Trump campaign telegraphed that they were specifically trying to reach. They wanted to get more of these folks out there who had never voted before, perhaps not even in 2016, is that they're also the folks who tend to be more inclined to believe conspiracy theories to listen to things like, you know, this QAnon hoax and all this other kind of stuff. And they're very unlikely, traditionally, to talk on a phone to a stranger who identifies herself or himself as a pollster or as somebody from a university or from the New York Times or something like this. And so it's just a matter of not having enough of a sample size of a population that refuses to participate in the polling process. How do you account for that? Well, I mean, I think you're right in terms of the polls being off because of who's polled and and some of the models. Uh, They say that's similar to getting some of the Latino vote polls wrong, is that they're not often reached by traditional pollsters. But I think you can't deny the impact of some of this really extreme culture warrior Catholic media And at NCR, we worked hard to try to combat that and provide an alternative narrative or alternative voice. But I just saw last night that EWTN, so this very influential Catholic network, has announced on Twitter that it's moving to Parler. And 
Parler is, or in addition to Twitter, I don't think it's leaving Twitter, but Parler is, of course, this very, this new social media that is dominated by right-wing, many uh, racist and kind of conspiracy folks who specifically have left other social media because those social media platforms like Twitter have started stepping in and trying to stop the flow of misinformation. So to have this prominent Catholic media organization announcing that they're moving to this platform, it just sends a a terrible, terrible signal to where we're going to go in the future. Um, I'm just going to note briefly, too, that by the time this episode drops, the U.S. bishops will have concluded their first virtual two-day meeting. So I'm not going to Baltimore, as I normally do, to cover that meeting. So it'll be very interesting to see what kind of approach they take on those days. It will be interesting. <laughs> I mean, the move to Parler is very, very interesting, too, and telling. For listeners who aren't familiar with it, like Heidi was saying, this is the wild, wild west, as it were, or the, you know, if you think about it in economic terms, it's like the black market. It's where you go to engage in things that polite society does not condone and or even Silicon Valley, like Facebook and Twitter, as Heidi mentioned, these are sites that have pretty generous range, you know, that that are the subject of criticism because of what they allow on their platforms. And my understanding is that EWTN is, is following suit with a lot of these rogue, so-called Catholic uh, individuals and organizations like so-called, you know, quote-unquote catholicvote.org. I put quote-unquote because it's a self-appropriated title. It's not any affiliation with the Catholic Church whatsoever. It's its a, its a its own lobbying organization. Or one might think of Church Militant or some of these other kind of far-right or alternative-right, alt-right groups. You know, individuals like Taylor Marshall and these others who have also moved to, to Parler who are, they have large fan bases, but they are not in any way endorsed or supported by the church as institution. They oftentimes don't have any kind of formal theological uh, training or minimal training. These are folks who are very, very dangerous. Regardless of their intention, they're dangerous because huge groups of people that fit oftentimes into this base we're talking about that is hard to reach by traditional survey means. And so it's hard to understand what's going on with them in terms of their politi- political activism and so forth, that they can influence these these groups. And they tend to be like Raymond Arorio and the other folks at the EWTN, more and more aligned, not just with Republican ideology, but we're talking about fringe disgraced groups of people like or former Archbishop Vigano, for instance, who is absolutely disgraced yet continues to have a platform among these various media. That is very disturbing to me. And, and our listeners should be cautioned that, you know, though EWTN may be a fine place to go to watch a streaming liturgy or something of that sort, their so-called news and certainly their opinion programs, I, I, I'm going to go on record, I'm speaking for myself here, are, are very dangerous because of their misleading qualities and because there are vested interests that align with very far-right political commitments and political groups, but also because, as Heidi's uh, excellent work has has shown uh, before she became executive editor and was national correspondent in this investigative reporting on EWTN, where the money is coming from, who's really influencing what people are seeing under the proposed auspices of the Catholic Church or Catholic media. It's very disturbing, and I would discourage people. There are other means, especially 
via streaming and YouTube and other places where you can find liturgy, you can find Catholic programming. I highly recommend Salt and Light Media from Canada. They are very legit and very solid. Well, as this conversation is demonstrating, we started out with the national election, and now we're talking about very, very intrusive politics on a local level with Catholics, thanks to social media. That old adage that all politics is local, that's actually coming true even more so now in this age of social media. There's more to say about this topic, of course, and probably in the six days between when we record it and and when you're actually hearing it, some things on the ground may have changed. But we're going to leave it here for now and take a quick break. You're listening to the Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to the Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Dan Haran and Heidi Schlumpf. Last week, the Vatican released the long-awaited report about former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick, the high-ranking U.S. prelate who, we learned in 2018, had sexually abused both minors and young adult men who were seminarians. The report attempted to explain McCarrick's rise to power in the church, both nationally and internationally, despite these repeated allegations, which included his admission that he had shared a bed with seminarians in various places, including a New Jersey beach house. The report was supposed to answer the question, who knew what and when? In its 450-plus pages, The report paints a damning picture of church leaders who consistently pass the buck about quote-unquote rumors about McCarrick. The blame falls largely on Pope John Paul II, who personally approved the promotion of McCarrick from Archbishop of Newark to Archbishop of Washington, D.C. in 2000. John Paul then made him a cardinal in 2001. He did these things despite having been warned by New York's Cardinal John O'Connor about the anonymous allegations of abuse by McCarrick and the fact that he was known to sleep with seminarians. Also sharing responsibility, according to the report, are three of four New Jersey bishops who were consulted before the decision to appoint McCarrick to Washington. They, quote, provided inaccurate and incomplete information to the Holy See regarding McCarrick's sexual conduct with young adults, unquote. Heidi, you've read the entire report. What surprised you? Yeah, so I started at 7 a.m. when it was officially released, and I did do a few other things that day, but I finished it at just after midnight, Tuesday night. And it's very, very sobering reading and a very, very sad day for our church. That said, it wasn't that surprising to me because I think we've known for a long time that John Paul II was not proactive. And in fact, especially if we look at the whole way he handled the uh, allegations against Father Maciel from the Legion of Christ, he already was had shown a willingness to look the other way when there was allegations or even some proof or at least plenty of smoke. He uh, would look the other way to try to promote people that he thought were either loyal to him or, as some suspect, there was some possible. Uh, both both of those men, McCarrick and Maciel, were very successful fundraisers. So the one thing that did surprise me is that some of these more conservative Catholic media who have been demanding this report, I mean, it did take quite a long time for this report to be released. And the fact that it was released in the midst of all this national news here about the election meant that it got somewhat buried by national media which I'm sure uh, some church leaders are are happy about. But the 
pretty much silence or a very laid back response by more conservative Catholics because one of their own, not only John Paul II, but also Archbishop Vigano, who has spent the better part of the last year, year and a half, trying to paint this as a huge failure on the part of Pope Francis. And while Pope Francis is mentioned in the report and does not come off completely innocent, he was guilty of trusting his predecessors to have handled this and and not spending more time looking into it. That said, when the allegation, especially the one about a minor, came to the attention of Pope Francis, he very quickly moved and took away the red hat and then eventually had McCarrick uh, removed from the priesthood. So I think that was surprising to me. And I think we will continue to be watching how the response will come from this section of our church that wants to blame it on homosexuality, wants to blame it on liberal church leaders, when really the, the leaders who get the most, who come out the most looking poorly in this report are not, quote unquote, liberal church leaders. Now, Heidi, you've read the 450-page report, and so for listeners who are concerned about this but maybe don't have time to sit down and read a 450-page document, is there a, a good explainer or a distillation of this at NCR or at other locations where we could point listeners to? Sure. Yeah. Josh McLellowy, our our Vatican correspondent, immediately had a story up on Tuesday that kind of sketched the overview of under the pontificates of both John Paul II as well as Pope Benedict and Pope Francis. He did a more detailed story that uh, ran the next day that looked specifically at how John Paul II made this decision. So a lot of the focus is on when McCarrick was moved to Washington, D.C. So he was an archbishop in Newark. He was already quite old, but the, you know, he, and his name had come up to, to have been moved to other larger sees where, or other larger dioceses or archdioceses where he uh, would have likely become a cardinal. And for locally, it was interesting to see that his name was on a list for Chicago, and instead we got Cardinal George. So and part of the reason that he didn't rise up was that some, you know, these these rumors, quote unquote, were well known among uh, many of the people who would have made, been making the list. But when the decision came to should we move him to Washington D.C., this becomes such an important decision because it is one thing to kind of leave sleeping dogs lie, like you have some unsubstantiated rumors, some anonymous allegations. To leave him in Newark would have been one thing, but to promote him to Washington, where because that sea is in the in the same city as our national capital, and to have him move to be a cardinal, that was a huge decision, and it was John Paul II's decision, despite warnings. I have a lot to to say about this, but I, I should state from the outset, just as a reminder to our listeners, that in terms of full disclosure, I was ordained a priest by Cardinal then Cardinal McCarrick, and David and I spent a lot of time talking about this in, I think it was season three, David, you can correct me on that, but it was the fall of 2018, shortly after uh, the news had broken, and then, you know, you might remember that summer of 2018, where the news of, of the McCarrick allegations broke, his removal from the College of Cardinals, and uh, then the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report in August came out. It was, it was a very, very heavy summer in that fall season we dedicated on the Francis Effect to addressing uh, pressing issues in the church, and, and we began that season talking about this. 
I just want to reiterate that I was not aware, obviously, as one of uh, over a thousand clergy who were ordained by then Cardinal McCarrick. You know, he was an auxiliary bishop as a young man in in New York, and then became you know bishop of Metuchen, and then Archbishop of Newark, and and Archbishop of Washington, and ordained not only hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of seminarians, then priests and permanent deacons, and and you know Khan celebrated the ordinations of bishops. So I'm just one of many, but he is somebody who was pretty close to my own province of, of Franciscan friars. We were on the East Coast. We were present in Washington, D.C. and in New York City and many parishes throughout New Jersey. And so we, we've known, when I say we collectively as a province of, of Franciscans, as a religious order, like all the bishops on the East Coast, particularly in the Northeast of the U.S., you know, we, we work with them very regularly. And so while many people, as this 460-page report outlines, there are a lot of people, especially people who actually had power, who had oversight, who had influence, going all the way up to the popes, John Paul II especially, Benedict and, and Francis. And there may have been people lower down the, the chain who knew about this. I need to disclose fully that I was never aware of it. And I am not a victim of, of his uh, predation, of his transgressions. So I, I just want to make that clear and at the same time acknowledge that I do at the same time feel somewhat conflicted by all of this, not conflicted about the the moral quality or whether there's criminality, right or wrong. I mean, it's it's clear, that's absolutely clear, and it has been certainly since 2018 for me, but conflicted because I, I feel a, a level of betrayal, you know, again, it's, 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 it's such a, on the one hand, a fleeting thing, but it's also bishops don't they they do preside at the ordinations, right? The, the celebrants of the sacraments, but they don't ordain. Christ ordains. You know, this is the theology of the church, and and just like when we celebrate the sacraments as priests, I don't baptize. Christ baptized, right? That's the theology, and and Augustine outlined this with a very important doctrine of church teaching um, that's expressed in the in the summary phrase in Latin ex opere operato, which is it's in the action that it is accomplished, that it's not the moral quality of the minister. If that were the case, then we could have no bishops, we could have no priests, we could have no deacons, no lay ministers, and so forth. Nevertheless, there are things that are so egregious, that are so disturbing. And I think the case of former Cardinal McCarrick is a great example of that. And to know that, you know, a huge part of my life as a Catholic priest, it's not tied to Cardinal McCarrick as such, but he was the presider at my and my classmates' ordination and ordained many priests that I know. And and again, it's not a reflection of us or of anybody else. It has nothing to do with us as such, except, you know, there is this shadow now cast as we think back to that very important day, you know? And I imagine with the clergy abuse crisis, as we've seen stories unfold, incredibly accused names surface um, from diocese to diocese and religious orders, that there are many men and women who look, for instance, at their wedding album now and, and realize that the pastor at their parish who presided at their wedding or who baptized their children or first communions, it, and all of a sudden it changes the the way we remember those things. So I, I just want to say that because this isn't really about the report. It's just about my own experience that it's hard, but it's not hard. It's not hard in the same way that it's hard for those who are victim survivors of this. And, and my heart and my prayers and my solidarity is with you, um, the victim survivors. But but I also want to say that that I feel it in a different way. And I know there are many women and men who, like me, only knew McCarrick as 
a very nice person. You know, this is not an excuse. It's just the realization of how complicated and painful and tragic and horrible all of this is. Because I I'm, I do not deny I, I am on the side of the victim survivors, but my experience is complicated by all this. So I just want to name that and, and I appreciate the opportunity to do that. But I do have lots of thoughts to add about the, the document itself and the implications that arise from it. Because there are, uh, I agree with, his name escapes me right now, the, the Jesuit the, at the Gregorian University in Rome who has led, he's a, he's a psychologist by training, who has led a lot of the Vatican's work on clergy sex abuse and prevention. Oh, Zollner? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's Hans Zoller, right? And what Father Zoller has has said is what I agree with 100% and others have called for too, which is there should be consequences arising from this study. Well, Dan, what you're saying about, you know, from from a distance, what you saw was what appeared to be just a good priest, a good bishop, a good archbishop, a good cardinal. That's the assumption that we're canonically asked to make when we look at a baptized brother and sister. We're, we're expected to expect the best of them and to not impugn them and not to, not to gossip about them. There's a difference between that expectation of the laity and priests from a distance of the good character of a person and those who actually had information about it. And one, one of the things that I really am I'm curious about is, you know, we've been mentioning uh, Vigano uh, throughout this conversation, and one of the things that oftentimes gets put forward, particularly in right-wing Catholic media, is that Vigano is the great truth-teller. And I'm wondering, how has this report changed what we know about Vigano in all of this, and what Vigano... What, what, what Viga knew? What Viga knew? What Viga knew at what point, and how that changes what we think about this whole situation from his perspective of responsibility in this situation. Yeah, let me just say this in, in response to what Heidi was saying earlier, and to your question, David. My initial response is to those in the alternative right, Catholic so-called media sphere, the online sphere, the the Taylor Marshalls and the LifeSite Newses and even EWTN, be careful what you wish for. Because, you know, you made the context in which Vigano was given credibility on your platforms, which in and of themselves are not reputable, but to a certain audience. And now you see a lot of this backtracking. They're trying to, the spin is is mind-blowing because it doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's so insane. But I'm fond of saying that Archbishop Vigano is disgraced and he's done this to himself and he's been caught now in a lie. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, initially Vigano is a reformer who wants to bring more credibility to the Vatican and wants to be part of, especially on the financial side, having some reforms there. But what happens is he's sent to Washington to be the nuncio here, and it is not a job that he wants. And what the report shows is that even though there had been some limitations put on McCarrick, so the part of the story after he's sent to D.C. is that some new things come to light or become aware to people in the Vatican under Pope Benedict, who then instructs the nuncio to try to, uh, they remove him even from D.C. So he's past retirement age and rather than keep him on longer, they say, no, let's move him out. Let's get him to move and kind of live a life of prayer. But it, that part of the report is very interesting to me because McCarrick pushes back 
over and over and again. He wants to keep traveling. He wants to keep being influential. He wants to keep speaking. He keeps talking and he uses the word useful, as long as I can be useful to you, which I'm wondering is maybe not code for raising money too, because he's bringing in all this money with his connection to the Papal Foundation. So what we see then is when Vigano becomes the nuncio, it, part of his job is to push back against McCarrick and to try to get him to stop doing all that. And he doesn't. He basically encourages it. And then on top of it, when he's instructed from Vatican officials to do some investigating of McCarrick, he doesn't do it. So he comes off very poorly as somebody who's also complicit in McCarrick's rise at the same time that he's running around trying to point out that other people are complicit. I think what we see is a man who wanted to be part of the Vatican power structure and part of the reforms that were going to happen under Pope Francis. He was initially excited about Pope Francis's pontificate, and he didn't get the job he wanted, and instead he was sent off to this job in the U.S., and now he's a bitter person who's attacking other people. It's human nature, but it's sad, and people should be able to see right through that. I think this raises a structural question about the clerical structure of the church. What is the balance between careerism, wanting to rise in the ranks, and care for people, the actual laity that are there on the ground? What's winning right now, and how can we begin to tip that balance more towards the care for people? Well, I think it's complicated, as all things are. And what I mean by that is, even look at the case of McCarrick. While there were these allegations and and certain people in power knew and let him rise or elevated him along the way. Yes, there were maybe personal and professional interests on the part of the enablers or those covering up, up to JP2, for instance, and others. But there was also a lot of good that McCarrick was doing. And And I'm not saying this to exonerate him or to mitigate any of this by any means. But, you know, he was also doing work as an envoy on behalf of international diplomacy. You know, I remember uh, when I was living in Washington, hearing about him being sent after he was retired as Archbishop of Washington after 75, like, you know, as standard, you know, being sent to places like Iraq in the middle of the Iraq war as part of a diplomatic envoy. So I think... Yes, the money is in there, the power is in there, but I think it's complicated. And I think Heidi's example of Vigano is a great illustration of this. You know, is Vigano this mastermind of evil? No. Is his worldly ambition tied to his you know original intention to do good work? Yes, it's 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 complicated, isn't it? Well, let me just say though, I think you're right, David, that it does raise questions about church leadership. In some way, the church comes off as not that different than any other hierarchical structure, which is you have mid-level managers, quote unquote, you have these two bishops from New Jersey who themselves witnessed McCarrick putting his hand on the crotch of a seminarian who was freaking out while it was happening. And then when asked, should we promote this guy, McCarrick, the two bishops don't mention it. So they, because you know, they're worried about their own jobs or or what I can't speak to their intentions and they're deceased now. But I, I think it raises big questions because we expect more of a church than we do of, say, Hollywood or corporate America. You know, who's eligible for leadership in the church? How is leadership chosen? Those are big questions. I think that's exactly right. And and quite frankly, I think the church is, and, and I thought this was made clear in 2002 with the, with the spotlight stories and investigations, and, and at least initially with the Dallas Charter, that the, the wool was finally pulled down, the veil was released so that people could see that 
holy orders does not make somebody not human. This is why I've rallied against theologically. Ironically, again, it was John O'Connor who coined in, in the 1990s this phrase ontological change, which seems to suggest a kind of magical change of a human person into something other than that. If you're ordained a priest, you're no longer human. You're a, quote, priest. And I think, what Heidi, what you're saying is exactly right, and it's it's the truth. We've seen this for 2,000 years. It, it, and, and to David, to your point about, you know, what do we do in terms of service, I think it's about, obviously, there needs to be structures in place to hold people accountable. There needs to be reporting practices that are standardized, that, that allow for cooperation with civil authorities and uh, the various juridical processes in different countries and regions and so forth. But I also think there's a deeply spiritual, you know, I, I like this phrase that Father Brian Massengale uses to talk about uh, structural racism, systemic racism in the United States. Yes, it's a structure. Yes, it's institutionalized. Yes, it's it's a culture. But he also calls it a soul sickness. And part of me thinks that that's another thing that's not being talked about as much right now. Understandably, there's a lot of facts that are being sorted through with this you know, very powerful report. But I think one of the takeaways is to your point, which is how do we address the soul sickness? And I think Pope Francis, though he's an imperfect vessel like we all are, at least is naming some of the things publicly that need to be addressed. Front and center is clericalism is this idea that bishops and priests and deacons and men and women religious are somehow of a different category, are above the scrutiny of the normal standards that we'd hold for one another. And I think that needs to stop. Well, listeners to my other show, Things Not Seen, will know that just recently I talked to a professor from Seattle Pacific University, Dr. Brenda Salter-McNeil. One of the things she said in that interview was that when Christians are in the room, the vulnerable should feel protected. And I think that's everything that I'm hearing in this conversation is a call again that it's the role of the church, it's the role of Christians to make sure that the vulnerable are protected, and that this report is showing that at the highest levels of our church, we have fallen down on that responsibility. That's a that's a stark place to leave the discussion, but I think it's important for us to come back to this and talk about it more. But for right now, we're going to take a break. Just want to let listeners know you're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlum. Every couple weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. On November 12th, exactly nine months since the global coronavirus pandemic led to nationwide shutdowns in the United States, the New York Times opened an article with a summary of the grim current state of affairs. Quote, the coronavirus is tearing across the United States at a pace fiercer than ever. Hospitals are filled to perilous levels. More than 120,000 new cases are being identified every day. And even higher and more miserable records of states' cases, of positive testing rates, of hospitalizations are being set day after day. As of this recording, the cases in the United States alone have totaled more than 10 Point four million, and the death rate is on the cusp of a quarter of a million lives. The virus continues to cast a long shadow over everything, but there appears to be a sliver of light breaking through, a small sign of hope in the form of a new report about a COVID-19 vaccine in development. 
The announcement came last Monday, November 9th, from the American pharmaceutical company Pfizer and its German partner, BioNTech. The headline is that preliminary results from a phase three trial of the vaccine showed it to be more than 90% effective in preventing infections. This is apparently very good news. The particular vaccine is just one of a dozens currently in development, and others also seem to be on a similar course to be efficacious. However, it's likely to be several months before it can be distributed to the general public. In the meantime, hundreds of thousands of people will become infected, and estimates paint a grim picture of the United States reaching near 100,000 additional deaths before the end of the year based on current rates and government ineptitude. Dan, how are you thinking about this news? Do we have reason to be hopeful? Yeah. So, I mean, I I think it is a sign of hope. I think it is a sliver of light. I think it is good news. It's objectively good news, though the scientists and the science reporters are very clear. It's it's preliminary. What's interesting is that this report uh, published on the 9th of November is standard. It's a very standard uh, protocol for this stage of the development of a new vaccine. As one of the New York Times science reporters said recently in an interview, most times these press releases come out about phase three testing with various degrees of efficacy in a particular trial, and most people pay no attention to it. But this is not most usual times. This is not most people. This is a global pandemic. And so it is good news. One note of caution is that it 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 will likely change the the trial that Pfizer and their German partners are engaged in right now has something like forty four thousand volunteer subjects and it's a controlled double blind experiment. The results are incredibly promising. Again, over ninety percent effective based on this data and the timeline right now, which is really important, looks like by the end of November, Pfizer will be in a position to request of the FDA emergency approval to distribute the vaccine. Pfizer, along with a a handful of other national and international companies, have benefited from the Trump administration's so-called Operation Warp Speed. Pfizer is not directly related to it, but they received what we might call a grant or funding. Part of Operation Warp Speed was that all these pharmaceutical companies were instructed to start manufacturing hundreds of millions of doses of these vaccines that were in trial phases with the hopes that once one was approved and considered to be efficacious to a percentage somewhere over 50, ideally over 70, that it's 90 at the moment is incredibly exciting. But that once there was that kind of emergency approval from the FDA, they could start distributing it immediately. The converse is if it proved to be unsafe or ineffective, then you would destroy these hundreds of millions of doses that have been created. But it was worth the cost. That was the that was the bet. So it seems like by January, if things move in the trajectory that they seem to be based on this early data of the phase three trial, then it seems like there could be a couple dozen million doses that are already distributed, especially to healthcare workers. Dan or Heidi, as we're talking about the distribution of these potential millions, hundreds of millions of doses, do we know what the hierarchy of distribution will be? Who would get them first and kind of how would that be handled? Yeah, it seems to be that the primary it's first of all, it's not entirely clear. It's not been uh, presented transparently, and I think that's that's smart. You don't want people fighting with one another or 
you know, entering a, a phase of kind of hysteria or something like this. What, what you see is the expectation is that healthcare workers, frontline workers, medical professionals would be the first to have access to this, and they rightly should. What's interesting, too, is that Pfizer and is not the only pharmaceutical company that's using this relatively new vaccine development. Some people may recall that the fastest successful vaccine to be manufactured was the measles vaccine that goes back, I think, to the 1950s, if I remember correctly. And it was a three-year process or four-year process. And that was the world record for turnaround from start to finish. What we see with this is right now we're talking about less than a year to come to what seems to be promising signs of a successful vaccine. Part of that is is because of the technology that has developed since then and what's being used uh, by, by Pfizer. And we don't have time to get into all the kind of scientific details. There's plenty of reporting about this that you can read. But is that there, AstraZeneca, Moderna, a couple other companies, Johnson & Johnson, are using similar technology. And if, if this data seems to reflect promises, you know, hopeful promise of, of a successful vaccine that these others who are also manufacturing hundreds of millions of doses, you know, if they're also successful, we could see uh, an implementation pretty quickly. But it's not going to be until mid to late spring for, I think, most of the general public. And so, you know, for the next six months, I think it's fair for everybody to keep in mind, especially as we're heading to winter and and cases are spiking, for me, this is the primary focus. Do not put all your hopes on a vaccine. It is coming, right? It is there, but we're in the middle of the storm right now, and we have to take this seriously. So I know what I'm looking at is the calendar, and I know what comes between now and next spring are the holidays. And so I think as we're taping this, people are already dealing with trying to figure out whether they are going to spend any time with extended family at Thanksgiving. And I know that churches are already preparing, like what are the Christmas holidays going to look like? How can we do this differently? You know, I'm concerned because we have some parts of uh, the Catholic church, some parishes, some dioceses that are still pushing back about the large gatherings or of people in churches. You know, we, we still have lawsuits going on uh, saying that the the rules that apply to uh, churches are unfair. I'm looking at my home state of Wisconsin, where if you look at the New York Times COVID map, it's like redder than red in the entire state now. And of course, not much better here in Illinois. But in early September, the bishops of Wisconsin had lifted their dispensation from mass for Catholics in the whole state. And it turned out to be terrible timing because that was right as the Wisconsin numbers were just starting to skyrocket. And you know, the Bishop of Green Bay, which was kind of that part of the state which was really hit first, did remove that dispensation in early October. But the rest of the state has not followed suit. And the the desire to want to attend in-person Mass is going to be strong uh, at Christmas. I know it is for me and for so many Catholics. So it's we're in for a, for a tough couple months, I think. Well, and this speaks to something that we've been talking about throughout this episode, and that is the role of church leadership in protecting the common good and in protecting parishioners versus the kind of visible structural manifestations of of power and pomp and circumstance. Like we have the if we have the appearance of a full mass at Christmas, but it's killing people, that to me is not actually fulfilling the Christian mandate. And I have a hard time getting into the mindset of those church leaders that see it differently. 
Yeah, and there's it's inexcusable. There's no excuse for this at all. To me, I see this as another lost opportunity on the part, David, like you're saying, of church leadership. And in, in specifically, we're talking about the U.S. bishops. I would love to see when they meet next week in virtually in Baltimore that there is a, a, a nationwide USCCB agreement that life matters, that life comes first. If they do not come out of this meeting affirming you know, the need to support the common good, mask wearing, all the kind of necessary CDC protocols, all this kind of stuff, and the recognition that it is against the common good and it is against life to insist that people risk their safety and the safety of others and their own lives to worship together in person. That is such an egregious violation of their pastoral and teaching responsibilities and obligations. I will say that this is another opportunity that the bishops, I believe, have lost to perhaps regain some ground in their moral authority, particularly with younger generations. I don't think young people today who see the bishops concerned about the so-called singular preeminent issue for some of them being abortion as the only political issue or the only issue that they feel comfortable talking about, I, I don't see them taking seriously the bishops claim to be a community of life when they're risking their own congregants' lives with these stupid egregious decisions and actions. The other thing I'll say is, you know, there are so many other important things that need to be addressed other than the kind of hobby horse issues that some U.S. bishops tend to be focused on. And here I'm thinking of a column I wrote a couple of weeks ago about mental health and the fact that this pandemic is is not only affecting the physical health of lots and lots of people, but because of the consequences of isolation, especially with winter in the Northern Hemisphere coming, on top of the fact that people are economically distressed or have lost their jobs or are underemployed. How about we talk about life issues such as that? How about we talk about ways that the Catholic community can come remotely or in our own respective uh, communities and families and so forth and support one another instead of this, like Heidi mentioned, these frivolous lawsuits in places like Wisconsin or in the Diocese of Brooklyn, which are a scandal. That is such an important point. And as a person who has on this program disclosed about some of my own struggles with mental health issues, I recognize, and I want to say to listeners who are listening, I recognize that when stress happens, some of the things that those of us who have anxiety or depression go to are things like ritual and habitual behaviors and, and family. And some of, some of those structures can be very comforting. And so at this time when so much is up in the air, it's natural to want to reach out and say, I want to be with my family. I want to do things that are rote and orderly. I want some things that I can control. So all those impulses are there and important and need to be recognized. And the church needs to recognize that and to be providing for people who are in stress alternatives to the kind of go-to of mass which would be dangerous right now. So the church does have a role, and the church can have a role with regard to ritual and with regard to its decent and ordered behaviors, you know, the kind of liturgical behaviors, but those can't be standard liturgical behaviors right now. So we need to balance the need for people, as you're saying, Dan, to go to these to these things that are comforts. At the same time, we want to make sure that those comforts don't put them in greater danger. So as, as a person who is acutely affected by some of these things, I see the church falling down on its role. It's just falling back on its habit, and it's not being imaginative. What we need right now is a theological imagination that can encompass a greater capacity for the ways that we can be Catholic right now, for the ways that we can be sacramental, for the ways that we can be comforting each other and be there for each other that takes in, into account reality. And 
I'm sorry to get on a soapbox, but you, you, you have named exactly the thing that for me and my family has been the primary sort of focus of conversation lately. I agree wholeheartedly. And I think one of the failures, to put it directly, is the solipsism of some of the bishops of, of, of the United States, where they're only concerned about either A, what they know or what they are personally committed to, which is a familiarity with the way things have been for the last 70 years. Most of these men are in their 70s. The other thing, too, is not fully embracing the opportunities that are before us with the technology that's available. Instead of filing lawsuits in in Brooklyn, for instance, about permission to jeopardize the health and safety of parishioners, how about instead they get on a daily Facebook Live session and talk directly to their communities, have opportunities, these kind of digital platforms where they could actually be pastors for their people, hear the concerns, listen to what people are asking, assuage their worry, their anxiety to the degree that they're able able to and exercise real pastoral leadership in ministry. You know, for the anxious people who are longing for the Eucharist, for them to say, you know, I'm in solidarity with you. I know this is difficult, but we're in this together and that the Spirit binds us as baptized members. We are the church, not the place down the street that it's unsafe to enter because you can risk your safety and the safety of others. Instead, what we see, for whatever reason, either lack of imagination, as you say, or maybe more cynically, the lack of financial income from not having collections or donations, whatever their motivation is, it is counterproductive to the call of the gospel. And and I agree wholeheartedly, David. I think this is a real serious problem, and the church is contributing to the problem collectively in its leadership rather than you know addressing it. So there's more to say, and certainly we're happy to hear about the possibility of vaccinations, and we will do our best to bring commentary as we know more. But for right now, we're going to leave the conversation where it is. Heidi and Dan, thank you again for being part of this, and I'm so glad to see you, even if virtually. Thanks for being here, and I'll, I'm looking forward to seeing you again in two weeks. David, always a pleasure. Heidi, always a pleasure. Have a great week. The Francis Effect Podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show at various locations around the Chicago area. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is francis francisfxpod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfectpod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. If you're here for the first time, welcome. On our website, we have an entire catalog of episodes going back six seasons you can listen to at your heart's content. I'll be back with Father Dan and Heidi in two weeks for another episode of the Francis Effect Podcast. Thank you so much for listening.